We are on letter number four. So we will be crossing over the halfway point in those letters to the seven churches in the, at the very beginning in, of this book of Revelation that we're committed to study over the next uh, lengthy period of time. I don't know how, about you, but I've already learned. Every time I go through Revelation, I really believe I learn a lot more, and, and more and more of it becomes clearer to me than it was, it was before kind of on the foggy side. Uh, and I hope that's true for you. I hope that as we go through here that every week you're going to be walking away with new ideas and thoughts about things that maybe really never have settled much in your mind and in your heart. Uh, it truly is a remarkable book. It's a mysterious book. We understand that. And we do understand this from the very get-go, that even though we may have some answers to many questions that may come uh, up along the way that we don't have all the answers and that is okay because we don't have all the answers because God God in his sovereignty has chosen not to give us all those answers for his own reasons and his own purpose and you and I just need to be satisfied with that what I want to do is encourage you to run like a scalded dog from anybody that comes to you with the book of Revelation and tells you they can tell you absolutely everything that it teaches and says because I don't believe that person exists, unless that happens to be Jesus. He can do that. And there's a sense in which he is doing that, because remember that these words that we're reading are words that were conveyed by him through an angel to the Apostle John who wrote them down in this book that we call Revelation, that they would be available not only to the church through the, through the centuries that have preceded us, but even for us today and into the, the, the future of the church, God's word going forth uh, in great power and great authority. So we'd be picking up at, in chapter 2, at uh, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and your deeds uh, of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and that is particularly sexual immorality. And eat things sacrificed to idols. Uh, And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have hold fast until I, what you have hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, 
and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, you should notice probably right offhand that this is one of the longer letters. More verses here than you're going to find, for instance, in the last couple that we have we've studied. Just a little bit about this this city, uh, Thyatira. It's one of those seven cities that were clustered kind of at the southeastern end of uh, Asia Minor. That were Greek colonies at one time, colonized by the Greeks, and each one had a history that some in some ways overlapped with all the others. Uh, there were also points in history that made some difference between them, distinctions. Uh, that sort of thing. They all are under Roman rule now, and they have been for a hundred plus years. So Rome has had a great influence upon the culture that is there. Uh, there's also been other uh, civilizations that have come and gone over the years of the existence of these different cities, and they've had influences there too. So what you would find, and, and this is just a kind of a general statement of all seven of these cities, is they were very cosmopolitan. In other words, there were a lot of culture. There's culture evidence of all kinds of cultures having significant impact on these communities. At the same time, they generally have some distinctiveness. What you would find about this particular city was that it was a great commercial center. You know, everything was about economics. A lot of selling, a lot of manufacturing, not, and certainly not manufacturing like we think of manufacturing today, but, but at this time there were all kinds of implements being made from metal to be used for weapons, used in farming and, and things like that. And so there was a lot of commerce that went on in Thyatira, uh, and part of that was it was right along one of the major trade routes, trade routes that would bring the raw materials that they needed uh, in order to make the things that they made, and then trade routes to send out the things that they had produced to other places. So this place was a place of economy. It was also a place of guilds, or what we would call trade unions. There was probably a guild for the bronze workers, and they were, there was a guild for the basket weavers, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we've talked about this already to a great degree, and that is that the, the, the church communities in each one of these cities really were in a very hostile environment, not really conducive to Christian thought, a lot of the people believe things that are very ad- adverse in, in contrast to what, uh, what, the ab- what, the, what believers knew to be true. For instance, with Greeks, if you even began to talk about the re- a resurrection from the dead, it was, it was nothing that they even wanted to hear anything about because they really believed this. This is what the philosophers have taught them over the years, and that is that the body is the prison house of the soul. So death is a good thing because at that point, your spirit, your soul is released from prison. So this idea now of rejoining the body and the spirit together in a resurrection would not have been an easy doctrine for them to stomach. 
much less lay hold of and believe. We would like to think that these churches were, were thriving, growing, busting at the seams congregations. But I would imagine that is not true. I would imagine that most of them were smaller congregations. Maybe some of them were a little bigger than the others. And I think we can come to that conclusion if we really understand the environment they found themselves in. They were in a battle, a real battle, that they were confronted with continually. An environment, a culture, that was anti just about everything they believed and held dear to heart. Life as a believer was tested constantly. They were encouraged repeatedly to give up on this Christian stuff and to join all of their friends and relatives and others to come with them to the temples of idol worship and and being there with them to participate in the rituals that went on with the animal sacrifices and all the other things associated with it. Sometimes it's hard for you and I, I think, to relate to where so many of our brothers and sisters have been as they've lived out life in this world. I know that some of you have been persecuted for your faith. Some of you may have been persecuted very severely for your faith. I would imagine that most of you have lost perhaps family and or friends because you're a believer and because they grossly disagreed with your understanding of just about everything. One of the biggest lies of the evil one is this, is that people can have divided loyalties and it's okay. This is one of the things that these believers, and not only here, but we studied in Pergamum last week, the same thing. You're going to find that the, the same kind of false teaching that was going on in Pergamum was going on in Thyatira. And the root of it was this, is that you can go ahead, yeah, go ahead and worship Jesus. Go ahead and worship this God. But at the same time, you also need to continue to worship all these other gods and make sacrifices to them. And so the lie was going forth very strongly, and that is that you can have a divided mind and heart and existence in this world. But if you really know the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know that our message is very different. And that is, even though there is sin that still is within you, therefore you are, in a sense, going to be divided, at least for now, until the time of your complete glorification. There is no place for having a divided heart and mind as a believer. What is demanded of us, what's required of us, is absolute, complete dedication to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to God the Father, to God the Holy Spirit. And to be very cautious in all that we do. 
Because it's very easy to step across the line to where your heart really is divided. And there's all kinds of temptations out there. Like I said before, this is one of the biggest lies that Satan has propagated down through the generations. And that is that it's okay for you to have a divided heart. As a matter of fact, you're a better person if you have all you know, you know, varied understandings of all kinds of things. Our culture today would say that people that fall into that category are people that are, well, very much enlightened. And, you know, they're, they're the people that we should be respectful of and seeking to be like. And they want to tell us things like, well, Christianity, you just have an exclusivism kind of mentality. You know, you're okay, and the people around you are okay, but the rest of the folks out there are just, you know, they're, they're, they're pagan, unbelieving sinners. Uh, we've given, in some to some degree, guys, a false message to the world. Uh, because they do, they believe this. And this, I believe this for a long time myself, and that is the churches are just filled up with uh, people who think they're holier than everybody else. I mean, they can see the sin in the lives of other people. They see all the bad things that other people are doing. But at the same time, they seem sometimes to be very blind to their own sin and their own evilness that comes forth sometimes. So in Thyatira, remember we've interpreted the angel it just means messenger literally and it could be an angel from God more likely it means the pastors elders that God has set apart in each one of these churches for oversight of those churches and then then Jesus makes reference to himself the son of God now you and I've heard that often own for much of our lifetime. We've heard people talk about the Son of God, and when we hear people talk about the Son of God, what do, what do we think? Who do we think they're talking about? Who do we know they're talking about? About Jesus Christ. But you need to understand that the people in this culture, they believe that some of the gods were sons of God. They believe that Caesar was the Son of God. And just to help us understand things a little bit here, one of the things they were telling everybody is, okay, you can believe in your God if you want to do that, but you also need to believe in Caesar as God. You need to believe in this God. You need to believe that God. They were being encouraged to have divided hearts. This particular one has eyes like a flame of fire. Now, fire brings two things. One of those is heat, and the other was what? Light. He didn't light. Two forms of energy. I mean, there's a lot we can glean from this. We could probably talk about the eyes of Jesus as being a flame of fire for hours. Because we know that this means a lot of things. And one of those is that Jesus sees everything. He sees absolutely everything that goes on. There's not anything that ever takes place in your life that Jesus does not, he's not watching it as it's happening. And that's true for every person that has ever existed on this planet. He sees it all. He knows it all. There is no place that anyone can go that they can get away 
from the side of Jesus. We also know that fire very often is representative of judgment in the Bible. Right? We need to understand this, that, uh, that Jesus is all kinds of things, but one of those is that Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is going to sit on his white throne. He's going to sit on his glorious throne when he comes. And he's going to judge everyone, just as we read this morning from the word of God, that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to give an account to him for what we've done with our life. I just want to say this to you this morning. That you can have assurance of salvation. You need to have assurance of salvation. But we need to know this, and that is the Bible teaches us that that, that judgment is going to be a little, it's going to be very different between believers and unbelievers. For believers, what we're talking about here is we're going to give an account to him for what we've done with the good life he's given us. If we've used that life to our own advantage and to our own gain, or we've used it to his advantage and to his gain. It's not a matter of whether we're going to be cast into hell or not. You cannot lose your salvation. You have truly have salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to answer to God in some sense, in some form, for the things that we've said, the things that we've done, the things that we've thought, the things that he's seen. We have, he has, we have no secrets from him. He's seen it all. Included in the description, his feet are like burnished bronze. Now, when I'm reading that, I think about the, 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 the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in the book of Daniel. You remember what I'm talking about? And it was this big statue. And I'm not going to talk about the whole statue, but it described the feet of the statue as being made out of iron and clay. And then when Daniel interpreted that vision, he made it clear that those feet of clay crumble. That there's a great stone that's thrown against them. And when the feet crumble on the statue, this image, what happens to it? The rest of it just comes tumbling down. Now, you notice here that the feet of Jesus are burnished bronze, one of the most commonly used alloys back in those days. There was no steel yet. They were getting into the, they were in the Iron Age at this point, but steel was still something that was not probably used very much. But bronze was used a lot for weapons and things like that. It's an alloy made out of, of copper and tin. Uh, but it's just a picture of the fact that the foundation of this image cannot be crumbled. It cannot be destroyed. It is permanent. It is solid. It is real. This is the Jesus that is speaking to John. This is the Jesus that speaks to you and I this morning. Almighty God himself. His kingdom will endure for all of eternity. There is no doubt that is his promise to us. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds are greater, uh, of late are greater than at first. 
Which of these statements is true? Jesus has done everything for me. So I'm saved by the good works of Jesus. Would you say that was a true statement? I hope so. <laughs> that Jesus is, you know, it, my salvation is based upon what Jesus has done for me. He's done those good works for me. He's done all the good works perfectly for me. Is that a true statement? In other words, is your salvation based exclusively on what Jesus has done for you? Yes. Okay. That's a definitive, absolute yes. Not a maybe yes or let me think about that. Yes, it should be absolutely concluded by all of us. Now, what if someone said this? Well, that's true, but without good works, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. You think that is a true statement? Okay. Well, what about faith without works is dead? Okay, so what I'm saying, there's a sense in which that second statement is true too. You need to understand that. That good works are part of the picture. They're just not the basis of our salvation. But what the Bible and Jesus teaches over and over again is if you have real faith, you will have good works. You will do the will of God. Not absolutely, not perfectly all the time, but you'll have the desire to do it. To do things like share the gospel with other people, to show people grace, to show people gentleness, to show them mercy that they're probably not going to get from any direction, other direction in this world. To demonstrate to those around us that we really have a heart for Jesus. And that we really serve Jesus. Because he is our Lord and our Savior. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about how the Father elected us at the very beginning of time for what purpose? To do the good works that he prepared. I just want to say to you that good works, our good works have something to do with the picture. It's not the basis of our salvation. What it is, is the fruit of our salvation. It demonstrates whether our salvation that we claim is real or not. The folks in Thyatira understood that. They lived their faith. And Jesus commends them for it. And again, they were in an environment where it was not easy for them to do that. Very often they were persecuted, and some of them very severely. Remember Polycarp and Antipas, men who were martyred because they simply refused to claim that Caesar was Lord and deny Jesus as their Lord. Remember the parable of the steward? The faithful steward? Remember, or the parable of the talents? You know which one I'm talking about? Remember the two that took the talents that Jesus gave to them and they multiplied them? 
Remember what Jesus said to them? Or what the king said to them when they came? And it was, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. You actually did something? What did the other steward do? He took the one talent that the, the king gave him and he buried it in the ground. And then when he came back, what did he have to give the king? He had, to give, he had the talent to give him back, but he didn't have anything added to it. Do you understand? That's a picture of what we're talking about here, guys. That those talents are the good works. The expectation is that you and I will take what he's given to us and we will multiply it. Through the works that we do in this life. For him. He also mentions that the deeds that they're doing now are greater than the ones that they did at first. They were growing in their faith. They were not satisfied with things to be the way that they had been before. They had a desire to do better. They had a passion to do better. Their faith was increasing. But Jesus also has a rebuke for them. We come to it in verse 20. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. See, they're guilty of the same thing that was going on in Pergamum. They were tolerating false teaching that was going on in the church. They had people in the church that were teaching things falsely. And what was the lie that they were trying to sell? And the lie was this, is that you can have a divided heart. Just like Balaam taught, just that the Nicolaitans obviously taught, that it's okay. You can be a believer, and at the same time, you can still remain very worldly and do the same things that worldly people do. You're okay. You're on safe ground because Jesus did it all for you. Have you ever met anybody in this life that kind of has that mentality? who sees their salvation almost in a sense of a license to sin. Because they always have the trump card to fall back on, and that is none of it really matters because it doesn't matter what I do because Jesus did it all for me, so what I do with my life now doesn't really make any difference. The only thing I have to know is that when I die, I'm going to heaven to be with Jesus. It doesn't matter how I live my life in this world. If you know anything about Scripture, you know that that's just, that concept is totally foreign from Scripture. And, and Paul says in Romans that anyone believes such a thing, let them be anathema. May it never be that any Christian would have that mindset. I think this is a place and point where 
Satan's attacking the, the church upside down and backwards. He's been doing it in every age. And I think in, in at least in our culture, it's intensifying in our time. Because we have a culture out there that daily is encouraging us to have a divided mind and a divided heart. The people are out there that say, oh, it's okay, you can believe what you want to about Jesus. You can believe what you want to believe about this, that, and the other. But you need to participate in everything else that other people are doing and agree with everything that other people are doing. You shouldn't say anything that's contrary to the common thought, politically or political correctness. We've all heard about that in our day, right? And it's very easy to fall into the trap. It really is. To fall into that trap, to, to, to begin to believe to some degree that, yeah, yeah, you know what? Jesus really did do it all for me, so I can just kind of do It's not going to make any big difference if I do this or I do that or I say this or I say that. But again, Jesus says this. He says, it's what is in your heart that defiles you. Not what goes into you, but what comes out of you. And all of those lies appeal to our sinful nature. Not to the Holy Spirit who's living in us. In verse 20, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. We talked about this a little bit last week, and that is that this is the time for repentance before Jesus comes back. Once Jesus comes back, there will be no more repentance. Be no more, more repentance. And as we get into the book of Revelation, we're going to see snapshots of things are still future to us, things coming in the judgment. And one of the things that's going to become obvious to all of us is this, is that even when they're confronted with the Son of God descending upon him with all of his power and might, the unbelieving still do not repent. What they do is they try to run away from him and hide in caves and crawl under rocks. But there is no repentance. He called for her to repent. Gave her time to do it. But she doesn't want to. She's not going to. And she will suffer the consequences of that. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of Sickness, a sick bed, a death bed. You might think of it as a place of torment. A place that ends in death. As we go through the book, we're going to find that there is a death that's far worse than the physical death that our body will enter into if Jesus doesn't come back before our time comes. We all know that, right? There's a second death. That second death is to be cast into hell, into that lake of fire for all of eternity, which we're going to see again at the tail end of the book of Revelation. But it's not only her. It's those who commit adultery with her. 
In other words, those who have heard her lies. You guys know where the, the name Jezebel comes from, right? You know, wicked queen, wife of Ahab. Ahab was a terrible, one of the worst kings of Israel, and she was his wife. Uh, she was very wicked and evil. She was the enemy of Elijah. Remember that? Uh, he says that, uh, that uh, he will cast her and those who c- commit adultery with her. In other words, those who are abiding by her teaching. Remember, she was teaching falsely. She claiming to be a prophetess, a teacher. If you think back to Ephesus, there were people there. There were guys there who were claiming to be apostles who weren't. How did the Ephesians figure out they were false apostles? Well, what they did, I would imagine, and we're not really told in Scripture, but this is the weapon you see used over and over again, our defense against these lies. And that is the Word of God, that they took the Word of God, they weighed in that balance, these teachings... And they concluded that they were unbiblical and therefore those guys claiming to be apostles were actually false apostles. And this is exactly what should have taken place here. That is this woman Jezebel is spreading these lies in the church. They should have listened to what she said, waited in the balance and cast her out. This is what the church is guilty of. Allowing false teaching to take place in the context of the church. It's not that she was going out into the marketplaces and things like that. This evidently was taking place right in the middle of the congregation. And people had this mindset. Maybe there were people there that didn't necessarily agree with what she said and accept, or she was teaching uh, and etc. But very often people have these thoughts and that is, who am I to judge so-and-so? Who am I to say anything? Unfortunately, very often the church has fallen into that trap. And, 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 and many Christians today, many church people today, see no need for church discipline at all when, when Scripture, by the way, my friends, demands it. It's not an option for us. It's not do you discipline if you want to, but it's okay if you decide you don't want to. Or, you know, and they take the, the statement where Jesus says, do not judge or lest ye be judged. And that's the whole basis for their understanding that there is no place for church discipline. But they don't ever bother to read the rest of what Jesus says. Sarah where he says, get the log out of your own eye before you go to help them get the speck out of their eye. In other words, don't be guilty and even more guilty of the same sin. You go point your finger at other people in regard to Make sure your house is in order before you go to them, but then you do go to them. And you talk with them, and if there's repentance, then that's the end of the story. Repentance, see? Repentance, it always keeps coming up. We just see it. We saw it last week. We're seeing it here. Repentance was required. And that is a willful turning away from sin. Great tribulation. He's going to cast her and those who commit the adultery with her into 
Great tribulation. You understand that there's only two places in Scripture where that phrase great tribulation appear. One of them is here, and the other one is in the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24 of Matthew. What does it mean? What it means this? It means intent. Uh, Thalipsis or tribulation means great suffering. In other words, it's not just common, ordinary day, run-of-the-mill suffering. It is suffering to the extreme. And this means suffering that's even more extreme than tribulation because it's not just tribulation, it's great tribulation. We understand that it's a period of time that's going to take place before the second coming of Christ. And let me just mention this. There's some false teaching going on in the church today, and one of those is this, is that believers are going to be taken out of this world before that great tribulation falls. The pre-trib rapture. Read my lips, guys. There is no, there is no pre-trib rapture. There's no one in the church that ever believed anything about a pre-trib rapture till 150 years ago. Before that, there is no mention of anyone ever bringing up a pre-trib rapture in all of history. But today, we live in a church where there's a, if I, there are a lot of churches. If people heard me say what I just said, they would call me Satan. Because people believe so strongly in a doctrine that just isn't biblical. It just isn't. There's no scripture in the Bible that you would, would lead you to conclude that there's a pre-trib rapture. And all the verses that they use... To, to, to demonstrate that it exists is are better explained as being references to the second coming of Christ. There will be a rapture then, by the way. When Jesus was sent forth his angels and gather all of his elect from the four corners of the world to himself, and they will join him in the air. When does that come? It comes at his second coming. There are people that will live and die, I have no doubt, doubt they would give their life for this false doctrine of a pre-trib rapture. But it doesn't exist. Oh, well, let me just say this. Either it doesn't exist or, or God has closed my mind completely to what his, the scriptures teach. Because it's just not there. Period. But there are a lot of pastors out there that are going to be preaching that very doctrine today. What would Jesus do if he appeared on the scene? You have to wonder. And let me just say this. None of us are pure in our doctrine. Don't get me wrong. There's things that you and I believe that probably are not right. If we're 80% correct, I'd say we're doing probably really well. So, I mean, there are areas where we can be wrong. But there are some areas that being wrong are vital areas and other areas that are kind of on the, the wayside. They, they matter, don't get me wrong, but they're not, gonna, they're not the centrality of everything. So you need to understand this concept of this pre-trib rapture breaks into that area. It goes way beyond anything that Scripture reveals. 
And what I would say to you, guys, is this, what drives it is this, is I think people have wishful thinking. That it's, it's nice to think or believe that God is going to take all believers, all of the elect, out of the world before the tr- great tribulation. But let me tell you, that is not even what the Olivet Discourse says. If you read what Jesus says, it talks about the tribulation, and then it talks about the elect enduring it. That there are believers in the world during this great tribulation. Don't take my word for it. Read it yourself. We're going to leave here. Okay. So obviously we're not going to finish this letter. We'll finish this letter up next week and probably get into the next one.